Why should publishers care about the concept of company narratives? How can companies become indispensable among many competitors? Chief Narrative Officer Toby Trevarthen has the answers for you in this episode of Agile Narrative. Welcome, Toby. Hey, great to be here again. Thanks. I'm Vanessa Zucker, Sparks Marketing Manager and your host. Tweet us at SparkPR if you have advice on building a company's narrative. Let us know what kinds of questions you want answered in the next episode. Let's get to it. Toby, you recently gave the Executive Insight Talk at the Western Publishing Association's Maggie Awards Banquet in LA. Just a quick background. The Western Publishing Association is a nonprofit association dedicated to the advancement of the publishing industry in the Western United States. The annual Maggie Awards Banquet honors excellence in print and electronic publishing in categories like editorial, design, promotional, and events. So how was it? I heard you did something different with this presentation. <laughs> yeah, I actually delivered the presentation a cappella, no slides. Oh. So uh, it was just me, a podium, and a mic. Um, so that was kind of fun and refreshing, uh, especially given the context that you know we talked about narrative and magazines and editorial. So, uh, and it was Friday night at 4 p.m. So I figured the last thing people wanted was death by PowerPoint. <laughs> yeah. So, kind of went a, a alone on that. The one little um, irony of the. Um, WPA that I was not aware of. They've been around since uh, or for 66 years. Wow! So uh, this is uh, an organization that has been around and seen a lot of change uh, over the course of time. Awesome. So what was the purpose of your talk and why should publishers care about narrative? Well, I was asked to be the keynote for this event prior to the awards. And given I have a pretty extensive uh, print background, you know, my, uh, my heritage is uh, growing up with Gannett Meredith and Time Inc. And I actually had two small publishers that were my first jobs out of school. So I have some context for the category, and the irony is I've been digital since 1995, so I've kind of moved on and not looked back, but appreciate print to this day. So I think the purpose for having me there was to kind of shed some light on the category, the changes that are impacting it, especially because you know we live here in the Valley, uh, and we're witnessing that here at Spark with respect to how business models are fragmenting and changing. So my goal was to kind of go in and shed some light and hopefully provide some silver linings uh, in a category that obviously is going through a lot of change due to technology. We all know that print is transitioning to digital and that is a lot of people's primary source for information, but what else is changing in the industry? Some of the observational things, in fact, an article just came out, you know, about Time Inc. now deciding to go on its own. And, you know, you, I grew up at Time Inc., so I always felt like I was uh, working for the Yankees in the day. Always very proud to have worked there. And I think a couple things are kind of impacting this space, and it's a lot of what I talked about was, I think today it's more about being narrow and deep and becoming indispensable to your audiences such that you know, they're willing to invest time and attention and uh, actually change out of their wallet to support you. And I think those are the new currencies today. 
you know, with the average time, I believe it's now down to eight seconds to get someone's attention. Wow. Um, so if you're not connecting in eight seconds, you know, you, it's, you're tuned out, right? And if you start looking at the amount of time I spend, I think the uh, active media study that came out at D conference last year showed that we spend 31.5 hours a day in some kind of activity. So obviously that means you're multitasking because uh, there's a little seven extra hours thrown in there. And 11 of those hours um, are spent on some kind of media or technology activity. So roughly half of your waking day is involved in some kind of media or technology transaction. And if I'm, you know, I use dog fancy as my example in the presentation. If I'm dog fancy and I'm all about dogs, you know, what am I doing to be indispensable given what I just laid out? For instance, I know Tim in the office here actually talks to his dog on dog cam, or <laughs> drop cam, I should say, excuse me. <laughs> it should be named dog cam. He talks to his dog three times a day, right? So if you're a dog magazine, you should be partnering with Dropcam and figuring out how to build a relationship between me, the dog lover, and my dog via uh, my ability to talk to my dog in my house while I'm not there. Same thing with like BarkBox. Does a dog fancy partner with BarkBox? Because again, if I'm a dog lover and I'm spending 20 bucks a month, am I not buying your magazine now? Because I now spend 20 bucks a month on a BarkBox and my dog knows it's his box and he destroys it when it gets delivered to my house. I mean, it's just, the game has changed in so many ways that I think as a publisher today, if you're a wide reaching publisher like a Time or a People or an Entertainment Weekly, you've been chiseled away by so many options now that how do you maintain your relevancy uh, given those impacts? And if you're a small publisher, which a lot of these uh, publishers were at the WPA, they are very vertical in what they cover. And I think relevance and relatability become very critical to their existence. Yeah, we bring up time because there was an article published, as you said, in Digiday called How Time Inc. Can Survive as an Independent Company. And this quote jumped out at me. It says, the web is not rewarding horizontal content experiences anymore. That was said by Patrick Keene, president of ShareThrough and former CEO of Associated Content. The article also gives advice to time. It says to dive into data, consolidate your titles, and modernize your verticals. Yeah, and it's funny, that article came out after uh, I had wrote my speech and presented. It was kind of a, a validation and brought a smile to my face a bit that we were talking similar subject matters. Yeah, everyone's starting to catch on. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that was very interesting in prepping for my speech is I literally talked to some of my friends at Facebook who are involved in the publishing entity over there, and I talked to several other platform-type people that publishers interface with and you know I asked them some pointed questions like you know how does this industry continue to thrive and where's the silver lining for them when you know I put my business on a Facebook and it changes its algorithm uh, overnight and all of a sudden you know what was my dependency on this traffic flow is just no longer happening yep. what do I do and why should I continue to trust you when you keep changing the algorithms right so 
I think there's some very interesting uh, dynamics at play, and some of the dichotomy of that is you have to participate with the big four, that being GAF, or Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. You have to figure out some way to coexist with those platforms because you need them to have any sense of scale. But on the other hand, if you're going to compete with them on a scale kind of playing field, you won't win. So how are you going to reframe your business, your business model, and effectively, I think it uh, requires them to take a chapter out of the book um, that Jeff Bezos is writing for Amazon. In fact, I asked the audience, has anybody read Jeff Bezos' annual report letter? You know, like, like Warren Buffett, he puts out an annual report letter, and I actually have gone back now and read every one of those since uh, Amazon was born, and it's really a great education to just read those. When you read about what he talks about this year, it is all about the customer. I mean, there are zealots about customer. In fact, uh, they still have you know the empty chair at their table whenever they have their meetings and that chair represents the customer and he talked a little bit about the Washington Post in this particular annual report this year which obviously lent itself to the publishing world right so when most news organizations today are caught up in the fray of fake news and whatnot and they're cutting back by shrinking the the workforce or the journalist force, and they don't invest in customer service technology, he's doing the exact opposite. You know, he's hiring more journalists. He's making sure that their integrity is now, uh, you know, greater than ever. And how can a guy like that come into an industry which is down into the right and reframe it? And, you know, are people paying attention to that? And uh, if they just read his annual report, there would be some light shedding that I think Mm. they could grasp from that. Mm -hmm. So you asked the audience three questions, and I don't want to make you do your presentation all (laughs) over again, but I really wanted to hear your opinion on your second question. Your first question was, what business are you really in? The second is, are you producing content for humans or machines? And the third question was, are you initiator or a responder? And I really want to ask you, what do you mean by are you producing content for humans or machines? Uh, Yeah, I think at the core of that, right, because we're dealing with that right now, especially in a lot of our narrative work, where we're starting to bring artificial intelligence and machine learning into helping us to find conversational white space, uh, what's not being said. And uh, one of the things we kind of harp on here is, are we writing for machines uh, as much as humans? Because if you think about it, today, unless you have your meta tags correctly in place so that they can be scraped, indexed, or crawled, or even deep linked back to your site, you're not going to rise up in the SEO world anymore. So you really almost have to be very cognizant that while you're writing for human consumption, you're also writing for machine consumption, which is meeting the obligations of the platforms who kind of rule the roost right now. So that's primarily what I was uh, Mm. talking about there. You know, especially like if you think about like the HuffPo's and the BuzzFeed's and the Voxes of the world, they've changed what publishing means and how they construct their articles. And as a niche publisher or niche publisher, however you want to pronounce that, um, you know, if you don't write for 
the sensibilities of the platform scraping you or indexing you uh, or tagging you. Will you get picked up by some of these newer uh, 21st century publishers who, you know, basically are scouring the earth for uh, hot topics or trending things where they can then amplify that via how they go to market? I see. All right, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. We both read this article in Wall Street Journal called An Entrepreneur's Story Can Be the Perfect Marketing Tool. And I thought this was a great thing to bring up with you because it's all about narrative and how the story of the company gets formed once it's founded. A quote that I really liked from this article is by Dr. Angela Randolph, assistant professor at Babson College. She says, stories about Founders and new innovations are often in the form of a myth and follow the hero's journey. But if millions of startups are founded each year, won't their stories start to sound similar to each other? Uh, yes. And I think that's literally, you know, one of the things that we solve for with, with our narrative approach is that very issue. We have found if you pick a category, any category, and we worked across a lot of different categories now, when you line up the, uh, let's say, six to eight competitors that define you and your competitive set, we literally find that people use the same 15 to 20 words to describe themselves. And we should name a law after it because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's literally every time we do it. So when that becomes the case, how are you going to stand out? One of the things that we really hone in on is heritage uh, and authenticity of a company and what gives them the authority to solve this problem that they've identified and they've built their company around. When you go back to a founder's story, uh, the, you know, the hero's journey, typically over the course of time, you know, companies were founded because someone saw a gaping hole or they were frustrated by an experience and they decided to solve it. I mean, look at Elon Musk, right? He's tunneling in LA because he was fed up with traffic while he was there. So, <laughs> you know, he takes it to the extreme a bit. But if you think about one of the most iconic stories I think that's out there is, you know, the, the formation of Walmart and Sam Walton. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, that is definitely a hero's journey kind of story. And that's like a classic case study at all business schools. Totally is, yes. What's your favorite startup story? Do you need help writing your own startup story? Tweet us at SparkPR and we'll get back to you. Thanks for joining us, Toby, and we'll see you on the next episode. All right. Thank you for having me and uh, look forward to uh, the next version of Agile Narrative. Block out and see the bottom line rise. Spark, we do it right.